<laughs> okay, am I on? You guys hear me? All right. Um, thank you, Ian. You always do a, a wonderful job with all the stuff in the beginning. And uh, thank you guys for the warm welcome uh, that you've given to my family and myself. Uh, it is a, it's a great blessing to inherit such a loving church. Um, I'm not worthy of it. I'm just thankful for it. Uh, so thank you guys so much. I mean, we've had people, we, we've been blown away having people over at our house painting and cleaning and steaming grout. I didn't even know you were supposed to do that, but people are doing that at my house. Uh, we've had people making us meals, um, showing us around the city. It, is, it has really been, uh, it's been a joy. Everyone's been inviting me. I mean, I've been, I've been over people's houses, every, almost every home group now. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. So if I haven't met you, uh, I look forward to getting a chance to connect. And uh, please, you know, I'll be here after the service. Let's, let's talk. Uh, but we could get into God's Word here this morning. Um, you can open up your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 1, 17. And we're going to read, actually, to uh, chapter 2, verse 2. So 1 Corinthians 1, um, in the New Testament, you got the Gospels, then Acts, then start to get into Paul's epistles with Romans, then 1 Corinthians. I did make a handout. Um, that's one of Jerry's recommendations. He said, we all get lost without a handout. So uh, hopefully that's helpful for you. Uh, maybe I got a little carried away with icons and everything else. But uh, if you have any suggestions, uh, let, let me know. I'm, I'm hoping it, uh, it'll be helpful. Okay, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17. I'm going to read the text here this morning, and then we will uh, pray and get going. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let's pray. 
if there was ever a text that just screams out, we need you, Jesus. We need you, Holy Spirit. We can do nothing without you. It's this one. I feel encouraged even just reading it. Because I know that though I feel weak and scattered, and my life is still slowly coming into order here in San Jose, in my weakness, you are strong. So Jesus, I pray that today the glory of your cross would rise up like the sun over these hills. And we would see what you have done in a new, in a fresh way. And for some of us, I pray God, they would see it even for the first time. Cross is the reason we're here. It's our only hope. But the cross, without your spirit enabling us to see and hear and feel and receive it, is nothing. And so we pray, would you accompany the preaching of your word this morning with the power of your spirit? It's in your name that we ask and we gather. Amen. Okay. Um, allow me here to map the beginnings of, of my story with you at Mercy Hill onto the beginnings of Paul and his story in Corinth. I was actually surprised as I did a little uh, background research into the city of Corinth to see how similar Corinth, the ancient city of Corinth, really is to the city we're living in here today, San Jose and the Greater Bay Area. I'll give you a couple of parallels and um, we'll move from there. Corinth, first of all, was a city of great wealth. A lot of prosperity. Okay, if, if you look at it on a map, it's actually situated between the north-south, east-west trade routes in the ancient world. So what that means is a lot of trade, a lot of commerce, a lot of wealth, a lot of prosperity. Now San Jose, one of the wealthiest cities in America, I'm sure you're all aware. It seems like people come in and people leave a lot of times because it's so hard to live here. I almost feel like I'm in sin just writing the check for my rent every month. It's so much. It's crazy. And we feel blessed. We found a place that's, it, you have to say, relatively inexpensive. But man, compared to the rest of uh, the country, it, it, it is obscene. <laughs> Corinth was also a city of promise. You had the intelligentsia, you had the men of status, and then you have the men that are coming in and hoping to climb the ladder, and there were opportunities to do so. So in Corinth, you have a lot of entrepreneurs, you have a lot of opportunists. San Jose, I was sitting with Steve Marsh the other day and his wife, and we were talking about what used, what, what used to be here in this city, and he was pointing out names like Blossom Hill and uh, telling me that actually it just used to be orchards. Nothing, nothing too special about this place until couple entrepreneurs, the success of a few startups, and then this place just erupts. And now you have people flooding in from all over the, the world, really, hoping to kind of get, get in on some of this success and climb the ladder. So again, another parallel here. Corinth, because you have the prosperity, because you, because you have the, the possibility of social mobility and promise, you also are going to have pluralism. There are a lot of cultures, a lot of, a lot of different people from all over the Roman Empire that were coming into Corinth, uh, because of these things. And that's exactly what you have here in San Jose. Our first night officially here, we were trying to find, I'm like, we were, I was on Yelp because we we're trying to find a place for dinner, right? Where we can hopefully, uh, get some chicken fingers for my, my kids. And I'm on Yelp, and I'm looking, I'm like, there's Vietnamese, there's Chinese, there's Hawaiian, I don't even know what Hawaiian is. There's, you know, and then thankfully I find In-N-Out. But you, you just have all these cultures represented in this place. 
And it's because of the prosperity and the promise. And so you have all sorts of classes, all sorts of philosophies, all sorts of religious devotions, all kind of commingling together in this place. We also know um, that Corinth was a promiscuous city. Historians speak of temple prostitution as part of their cults there. And they also speak of homosexual exploitations and escapades going on even in the temples as well. And you get a sense of this when you read through the the letter of 1 Corinthians. Um, You can see in 1 Corinthians 11 that even at the Lord's table, they they were drinking to the point of getting drunk. It's just their culture, indulgence, immorality. San Jose, it was just disclosed, just disclosed by the Barna Group. I wonder if you saw it. Um, it's kind of, they kind of grouped together San Jose with San Francisco and Oakland. And I said, you know what? It's the top of the list as far as unchurched and dechurched in America. This is it. We're living in it. It's a promiscuous city. Even the churches, even the solid evangelical churches that I know that took root here, I'm watching them give way to the pressures of, 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 of secular society over issues of ethic and other things. We're going to feel it soon in this church, I'm sure, if you guys haven't already. And finally, Corinth was the biggest city that Paul had faced up to date in his ministry. Nearly a quarter of a million people crammed within its borders, okay? San Jose, I think I just saw it online, it's about the 10th largest city in America. Over a million people now in this city. When I first drove through here, I thought, oh no, does this city ever end? I hit, I hit center city there, I'm driving like, it just sprawls on forever and ever. Where does this thing end? And thank God, I think it kind of ends at my house. <laughs> Right there at the hills. It's wonderful. God knew I needed a place to retreat. So uh, if ever you need the same, come on over. We'll go for a hike. (laughs) Now, with such majesty before Paul, this massive city and all these things to consider, and with the memory of beatings and the things that happened to him in cities just prior to Corinth, like at Philippi and Thessalonica, Everywhere he went, beatings almost to the point of death. And here he is now in an even bigger city, in an even more impressive city. He says this to them. It starts to make sense in verse 3 of chapter 2. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Even Paul could be a little bit taken aback so much so that if you, if you know the story in Acts, I think it is 18, Jesus even has to show up to Paul and say, don't be afraid. I have many in this city. Keep going. Paul was scared. And I'll tell you something. I have not been beaten for the gospel, but when I stand before this city, I know a little bit about that fear and trembling. I look and I say, I'm not one of the intellectually elite I'm not cultured. I'm not wealthy. I talked to Jason Belk and I go, I don't know anything about politics or engineering or computers. What am I doing in this city? Who is sufficient for these things? How do you reach a city like this for the gospel? What do you do? The fear and the trembling that must have taken Paul, though for much better reasons in his case, I feel it as well. What do you do? What do I do? Why are we in this text in 1 Corinthians? I wanted to take my cues from the Apostle Paul. What did he do? How was he going to reach Corinth in spite of his fear and trembling? What would be his philosophy of ministry? What would he say? What would he do? The same thing he did in every city he ever entered. The 2 Corinthians 2.2. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Christian ministry, no matter how terrifying, is never about pandering to the culture to gain a crowd 
or gain a following or gain their approval. It is always about preaching the cross even if it gets you crucified. We only have one message, one hope, one glory. That's it. One alone. One philosophy of ministry for the Apostle Paul. Christ and Him crucified. That's it. So, you know, I thought, okay, I feel a little scared. I'm standing here in front of this huge city. I'm hoping to reach it for the gospel. I'm not, I'm not equipped. I'm not able. What do I do? I decided, no, I pray by God's grace. Nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So you can call what we will be doing for the next month or so um, a mini-series, if you like. The overarching title is going to be Christ and Him Crucified. Okay, you should see that on your handout. Uh, that's obviously coming from 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. But we will come at this from four particular angles, all drawing from 1 Corinthians as its source book. Okay. First, which is what we're going to deal with today, the centrality of the cross. Second, the conquest of the cross. That'll be next week. Third, the calling of the cross. And then fourth, which we might spend a couple weeks on, the community of the cross. The aim in this series, the overarching goal, if I had one, and I had to to, to give it to you here, would be that I I want to establish Mercy Hill immediately as a cross-centered church. Though I know you've already been that, I want to do my part to keep it that way and even make it more so. Establish us as a cross-centered church that more and more we might become a cross-cultured church. And what I mean by that isn't just that we're a church that stands against American secular society. That might happen, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a church that has a culture patterned after the cross of its Savior. We look like Him. We look like the Gospel. We're filled with people ready to die like Jesus died for us. That's the game. So this morning, the centrality of the cross. I'm going to attempt now to get us into our particular angle by asking a question of the verse there in 1 Corinthians 2.2. Namely, why? Why did Paul decide to know nothing among the Corinthians but Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Why? Certainly it wasn't to get a following for himself, like we said. Nearly every town he brought that message He was stoned and kicked out and bruised and beaten and rejected. So why? Why determine to know Christ and Him crucified alone? To answer this question, I want to broaden the context to include the entirety of the biblical narrative. Okay, The whole Bible is in view at this point to answer this question. Because what we find when we bring the whole Bible into view is that Paul didn't invent this cross focus. He inherited it from God. God is cross-focused, cross-centered. Therefore, Paul is. Kind of work our way towards that. What we see is that the cross is the central feature in the storyline of Scripture. And this is because it is the central feature in God's plan of redemption. And therefore, it must be the central feature of Paul's and now our preaching and life. That will compose kind of the three headings for this message under which I'll organize my thoughts. Okay, we have storyline of scripture, center of plan of redemption, center of Paul's preaching and life. Okay. Now, let's begin with the uh, storyline of Scripture, with the cross at the center. What do I mean by this? That the cross is, is, the, center, is, is the centerpiece in the storyline of Scripture. I'll tell you what I don't necessarily mean. I don't mean that it's merely central in location, meaning you open up your Bible and the gospel accounts of the cross and things are kind of in the center of this book. 
That's true, but that's not what I'm aiming for. What I'm talking about is not so much centrality of location, but centrality of significance. Which means anywhere that you open up this book, whether front page, middle page, last page, the cross is there. It's pointing us to the cross in one way or another. The Old Testament is pointing us forward to the cross. The New Testament pointing us backward to the cross. But it is all centered on the cross. I tend to think in images. You'll probably start to get this. You maybe have already from my first two messages. But maybe this will be helpful for you. What I'm picturing is is as if God from all eternity... Casting a stone, okay, forward. It lands in the the waters of his providence and ripples usher forth, right, in both directions, backward, forward. Now this cross, or this stone, is the cross decreed from all eternity that God planned, right? And it's landing in the waters there at the turn of the, of, the, of the ages when Jesus Christ shows up. But what we have, ripples coming before it and ripples going after it. The ripples before it would be things like the, the promises and the prophecies and the symbols and the shadows of the cross that permeate the Old Testament. I mean, it just fills the Old Testament when you really look for it. And the ripples going forward are the things that are carrying out in our life as we bear our own crosses and follow after Him and show and speak of His cross to others. But the cross is the center of it all. Let me give you one illustration and we will um, move from there. Oftentimes it's hardest to see this in the Old Testament, right? We can open up the Old Testament and we just get lost. (laughs) I graduated from seminary. I still feel lost when I open certain parts of the Old Testament. Let me show you one example using um, an example actually that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians. I want you to see this. It's 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. And we'll read verses 1 through 4. He's directing the Corinthians here back to the Old Testament where they had just been freed from Egypt in the Exodus and were wandering through the wilderness. And Paul's recounting this, and watch how he shows it's all leading us to the cross. It says this, Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. Now get ready. And the rock was Christ. (laughs) You're reading that story in the Old Testament in Exodus and the rock shows back up again at the end of their journey there in Numbers. And you're thinking, I would not see this. But Paul here invites us to see Jesus there in the Old Testament because He's there. He says the rock was Christ. And now when you look from our New Testament vantage point, hopefully you see it. Because what we have in the Old Testament there in the story is that the staff of Moses strikes the rock. There, actually it's called the rock at Horeb, which is very interesting, we won't go into that. Strikes this rock and from the rock comes... Water to quench the thirst of the covenant people of God along their wilderness sojourn towards the promised land. Now what do we have? How would he say that that rock is like Christ? Well, Christ on the cross was struck with the full weight of the law of Moses under the curse and from Calvary's fountain comes forth living water for the covenant people of God to drink in their wilderness sojourn as they travel on the way to the heavenly city. The rock was Christ. The cross is the center of the storyline of Scripture. But we ask why. Why is the cross of Christ 
the central feature in the storyline of Scripture. Why all the ripples backward and forward? Why is God making such a big deal out of the cross? It's because the cross is the central feature in his plan of redemption. The cross is how humanity gets put back right. All of Revelation, all that God speaks to us in the Bible has redemption as its goal. He's not just kind of showing off and writing nice little poems and nice stories for us to be entertained. He wants to save us. He wants to get us back to himself. He doesn't kick us out into exile and leave us alone. He, he comes after us. He pursues. He loves. He speaks. And when he speaks, he says, this is how you get back to me. Revelation has redemption as its goal. Therefore, the cross is the central piece of the storyline of Scripture because... It's the centerpiece of his plan for our redemption. Okay? It is the solution to our problem. Now I want to look at this problem for a moment. Why do we even need the cross? Why do we need it? Okay, so you're saying that he's putting the cross there because it's his plan for redemption, but what's the big problem? What's the deal? Why do we need it in the first place? For that, I want to go to Genesis 3. We're just going to read verses 1 through 8 of Genesis 3, and it might be wise to turn there. First, first book of the Bible. Because this is, this is recording for us the fall. The fall of mankind, the fall of the cosmos. <clears throat> this is where everything went wrong. If we understand things here, we understand how the cross answers to it. Now, God creates realms in Genesis 1 and 2. And He fills those realms. And He puts man and woman as the capstone of all His creation above it all. And He gives to them everything. And He says, this is very good. But there is one thing that He says, refrain from that. It's the fruit of one tree. And it's not something special about this tree or about this fruit. It is to test man's allegiances. Are we going to stay in our place beneath our Creator or not? Are we going to trust His Word, His authority or not? Here comes the test. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of any, I'm sorry, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You stop there. I want to go after the root of a problem here. What happened? Now remember, I haven't forgotten our text in 1 Corinthians. I'm trying to go from the broad context, narrowing in to help us make sense of what Paul is saying, because that text in 1 Corinthians 1 is tough. And I know that. And this, this is actually aimed to help. What happened at the fall? What happened here? To borrow the language from our text in 1 Corinthians, I think we can say that the problem is man 
they wanted wisdom and power more than anything else. You see it there, verse 6, the second half, the tree was to be desired to what? Make one wise. And you see it there in the second half of verse 5. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. I want wisdom. I want power here. That fruit from that tree looks like it will give it. God's just trying to keep me down. And I'm about to elevate myself up. Interesting to note, the desire for wisdom and power isn't really the big problem. God intended for us to grow in wisdom and in His His likeness. We were created in His image. We were already like God. (laughs) The problem is that they wanted to do it over and against Him. It's the way they went about it. Instead of doing it on God's terms, we will do it on ours. So they, in their reach for wisdom and power, capsized the whole creation. We fell. So what's at root of all this? I think we could say that the root of our problem, the root of our dilemma, is a God-impeaching, man-enthroning pride. This is what I might call the ancient antithesis. Okay, It's man over and against God. You will not reign over me. Instead of under Him and with Him. We were created to flourish under Him. And when we reached over Him, things went awry. It's a God-impeaching, man-enthroning pride. Now this makes sense of the goal we see driving God's activity back in 1 Corinthians 1. I wonder if you notice this, but God is actually on the warpath there in our text. He is after something destructive if you read it carefully. But what is he making war against? What is he trying to destroy? Look back with me at 1 Corinthians 1. In verse 19, I'll give you a moment to turn there if you need to. Verse 19, we see this. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Second half, the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Verse 20, he is making foolish the wisdom of the world. Verse 27, his aim is to shame the wise and to shame the strong. Verse 28, he wants to bring to nothing the things that are. And then finally in verse 29, we're given the ultimate goal of all this activity. Here it is. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Boasting, human boasting in God's face is the big problem. And that's exactly what we see emerging at the fall in Genesis 3. This God impeaching, man enthroning pride. I will boast in His presence. And God says, no, you won't. And the cross of Christ is aimed at confronting that antithesis. You will not be over and against me, but under and with me. Now, here's something interesting. And this also will help us make sense of the paradoxes that we see all over our text in 1 Corinthians. We often talk about the fall. Uh, There in Genesis 3, well, I guess I just said it. We often call it the fall. We talk about it as if it's kind of a, now life on a lower plane, things descended, man fell from his high place in God's created order. But I actually want to point out that it is more than a fall. It is actually also a flip that we see taking place in the fall. So as man is going down, things are also being turned over. There's a dissension and an inversion. Let me make sense of this for you. Um, I'll, I'll do it quickly from our text there in Genesis 3, and hopefully you see it. The order of creation, 
was what? First, vegetation. Then those, the, the vegetation was put under animals. Animals put under man. With woman put under man. And then man put under God. Right? What happens in the events that we see in Genesis 3? Well, there's this fruit from a tree, vegetation, that's leveraged by the serpent, who's called the craftiest of the beasts of the field, whatever he was back then, an animal who gives to the woman, who then gives to the man who breaks covenant with his God. The fall of man is also a flip. So that what we have now, as it's been sealed in the curses of God, is an inversion of the created order. The way God designed it is now upside down. This makes sense of what we see all over 1 Corinthians 1. That to natural man, the things that are truly wise seem foolish. The things that are truly strong seem weak. There's this irony all over the Bible. It's not just 1 Corinthians. It's all over the place. It defines our salvation, as we will see. The fall is also a flip. You remember King Nebuchadnezzar? Let me give you a couple of illustrations of this. You remember Nebuchadnezzar? When he's walking on the, the, the roof of his palace and he says something along the lines of, look at what I have made. Aren't I glorious? The kingdoms of the world are mine. This is what God says to him in Daniel 4, verse, I think, 32. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. The kingdom has departed from you, and your dwelling shall be, what? With the beasts of the field. When Nebuchadnezzar thought he was as high as the gods, God says, you are as low as the beasts. And dew covers his face, and he literally becomes an animal. Acting like an animal. This inversion, life as we know it, is upside down. Be careful what you see with your eyes and, and, and hear with your ears. It's not what it promises to be. You remember Herod, when he's giving a speech to the people? This is Acts 12, if you want to write it down, 22 and 23. He's giving a speech to these people. And they say, the voice of a God, not of a man. Look at how wonderful this man is. And then Luke records for us, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. And note this, because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms. Breathe this last one. So you got Nebuchadnezzar, a beast. Herod, worms. They think they're the highest when they're truly the lowest, the wisest and the powerfulest when they're truly weakest and foolish. And guess what, guys? This is in us. This is in our hearts. It's what the Bible calls the flesh. We'll see Paul dealing with this in the Corinthians all over the place. Oh, you're infants in Christ. You're still walking in the flesh. The flesh is characterized by this inverted world. I want to be greater. I want to get up. I want to be seen. The cross opposes this. But it opposes it to save us. What do we do about this problem? Here, here, here again is another irony. We can't do anything. Man can't do anything. Any of his attempts to save himself by virtue of his own wisdom and power, and not God's, actually expresses this problem and dilemma rather than solves it. All of our attempts with education and government and politics and whatever, economics, whatever else you want to do, to save humanity is actually an expression of our problem insofar as we do that on our own. 
with a boasting in man and not in God. There's only one who can save us, and it's the one that we so radically offended. The one that we never wanted to reign over us is the one who has to humble himself, the only exalted one, humble himself and come after us. Another irony for you. The first curse, the first curse in Genesis 3, after the fall, is actually the first promise of the cross. The curse against the serpent is the promise of the Messiah. God is not going to leave us to ourselves. He's coming after us in Jesus Christ. And when God enters into this inverted, upside-down world, God becomes a man. And if we follow his life to the point of Calvary, what do we see? The only righteous one who ever lived made sin. The only wise one, wisdom itself, mocked, made foolish, laughable, a joke on the cross. People just scorning. The one so strong that we read, I think, in Hebrews, he can uphold, he does uphold this world by the word of his power on the cross is made so weak that he can't even hold up his own head. Love itself is thrown to the wolves of hatred with men lashing and spearing and hanging him. The light of the world, we see him there suffocating in darkness. Darkness covered the land, the gospel records for us. While he's up there. The light of the world, what's he doing in darkness? The only true Son of God, there, disinherited, abandoned, forsaken. Why have you forsaken me? The author of life, giving himself over to death. This is what the Messiah does when he takes on the fall and the flip. The ghastly climax of this inversion. Have you ever thought about this? Man kills God. That's our gospel. But it's not done, right? (laughs) Not quite good news yet. Because the ghastly climax of the inversion is actually the glorious beginning of his reversion. Putting things right side up. Here's the most amazing thing. While we thought we were killing God, he was actually saving us. This is love. This is grace. And what happened there on that cross sets in motion what will become the beginning of the grand reversion. In his resurrection, he says there is a new beginning. The firstborn from the dead, the firstborn among many brethren, it is Christ. Here he is. He is our hope. This is why we hope in the cross. And here's what happens. Notice this in our gospel. Now, now, it's the poor who in Christ are made rich. It's those who mourn who in Christ are comforted. It's the meek who in Christ will inherit the world. It's the lost who in Christ are found. Those who know they're sick that are truly well. 
those who are dead that are made alive, those who are lame that are healed. This is the nature of what he does with us. And he begins with that point of, I am foolish, I am weak, you are wise, you are strong, I see it now. Thank you. Thank you for the cross. Now because, I will end soon, I promise I'll get a handle on, on, on my preaching, in case you're worried. <laughs> We're almost done. Because the cross is central in the plan of redemption, it is central in the storyline of Scripture. And because of all this, it is central in Paul's preaching in life. Paul brings the cross to Corinth because there is no other message that they need to hear. But here's the crazy thing. The cross and the preaching of it is both diagnosis of the problem and its cure. This is what Paul knows. This is what, by God's grace, I know, we know, which is why we determine to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So Paul comes and he knows when he preaches the gospel, it is diagnosis. Because to those that hear the cross, it's foolishness. Oh, that's weakness. That's pathetic. A crucified Messiah, that doesn't make any sense to the Jew. And it's not very entertaining to the Greek. It exposes the fact that man wants to be on top and something like that, a dying criminal on a cross, doesn't please him. Doesn't sound neat. And that's the big problem is we don't realize that we deserve to be there. That that was us. He took on our place. We shouldn't be putting ourselves over God but coming under Him. And when we rebelled, that should have been us. And the problem, that pride is exposed in the preaching of the cross. It's exposed. That's why when... Stephen's preaching the cross to the Jews. It says they, they, they stop their ears and they want to just go and kill him. I don't want to hear about this because it's coming at my pride. But while it is diagnosis, it is also cure. Paul knows that as well. So that when he's preaching the cross... There will be those who, and that's why I prayed what I prayed at the beginning, when the Spirit attends the preaching of His Word, it opens people's eyes, opens people's hearts. And the Spirit actually can come inside of us now because Christ paid the penalty for all of our sin. And we can be born again in Him by virtue of His resurrection life. Diagnosis and cure. And when our eyes are opened, we now see in the cross what we never saw before, that it is in fact the wisdom and the power of God to save me. Point of application is all we're going to do at the end. Just one little thing for you. I said earlier that boasting was the issue, right? That God was attempting to silence our boasting. It's only partially true. If you read carefully in 1 Corinthians 1, you saw it there in verse 31. That God was attempting to silence man's boasting in himself. But that we were actually, you'll see, created to boast in God. We were created to see His glory. His majesty, His greatness, His wisdom and power, and boast in Him. We were created for something so much bigger than Corinth and San Jose in all of its glory. It's nothing. The higher up they build it, the lower it gets in God's eyes. We were created to boast. To behold and boast in the Lord. That's verse 31. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. That's where God's going with the cross. Not just to shut our mouths, 
silence us, put us to shame. No, 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 no. To bring us into (laughs) incredible, overwhelming joy at the sight of His grace and glory. That it would just erupt from us how great He is. So here's your application point. Boast. Boast louder than you've ever boasted before in the King of Calvary. Get haughty. Get puffed up with praise for the Lord of the cross. Brag about His wisdom, His power, His grace, His love. Get conceited. Arrogant, whatever words you want to think. This God, we were created to boast. It's not in ourselves, but in Him. And it's the cross that gets us there. Which is why as a church I pray, we would decide to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Thank you for your patience. We are done. Um, let me pray. God, I. What glorious news it is. Every salvation story in this room begins with a revelation that we are nothing, that we are weak, that we are powerless, that we can't do it. We can't self save. And we're tired of trying to get the approval of man or to make ourselves what we could never be get ourselves where we can never get. So Lord, for those people that are feeling weak, that are feeling down, that are feeling helpless, feeling foolish, I pray that with Paul, because of the cross, they would boast in their weaknesses and in you. Because you are their strength. Bring us to the cross afresh, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.